Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review. I shouldn't actually say they're brand new. They're relatively new. They've come out within the last couple of weeks or, in one case, months. But it being January and me having to go through a lot of the potentially award-worthy films to view and trying to play catch-up there, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm playing catch-up. So... The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Whale. This movie was released first at the Venice International Film Festival on September 4th, 2022, and was released nationwide, albeit in limited release, on December 9th, 2022, and it is out in the theater. It is out in theaters now. It could potentially be out in a theater near you, but because I don't really know where you live or where you're from where you're hearing this broadcast, I can't exactly tell you, but the point is that it is out in most theaters now, especially art house theaters, and chances are, especially when the Oscar season comes about, it will probably be available on streaming sooner than you think. So The Whale is a 2022 movie. It's directed by Darren Aronofsky, who is no stranger to ostentatious and very unpleasant films, having directed the thriller Pie, the really uh, dissonant, uh, shall we say, and it's it's giving me chills just thinking about it, the movie Requiem for a Dream, which makes you really, really uh, cautionary about drug use and drug addiction. He also directed several other films like The Fountain, The Wrestler, and the film he directed actually before The Whale was the very polarizing film Mother, starring Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. And Mother was a film that I really enjoyed and appreciated for its dissonance, but it turned a lot of people off. And I think at that point, Jennifer Lawrence was considered America's sweetheart in a sense, as well as the relatable girl next door. And that movie challenged a lot of people's assertions of that image. I don't think that's a bad thing, but regardless, I, and I also don't know if, if Darren Aronofsky took a really long time to make his next film because of the polarizing backlash behind Mother. But regardless, he's back in the director's chair, and he's directed a film that is, again, not for everyone. It is, again, also very sad. There are certainly some dissonant moments to this film, but it is in a lot of ways, a very brilliant film that has very brilliant performances within it, especially one that is undoubtedly a comeback for its lead star. So the movie is about a reclusive, morbidly obese English professor by the name of Charlie, who's played by Brendan Fraser in his first dramatic role, not ever, but certainly in a very long time. It's also his most high-profile role ever. And... For those of you who are wondering, Brendan Fraser does not look like he did when he made the Mummy films, but he did not gain uh, 400 pounds for this role. A lot of um, the weight that you see in this movie is prosthetics, and considering that this film was only made for $3 million, which is a very, very low budget, especially for a director as high profile as Darren Aronofsky, it really is amazing how he looks legitimately morbidly obese. But anyway, because of his obesity, he is reclusive, and he's teaching English online on a website very similar to Phoenix University or uh, DeVry University, and he attempts throughout this film to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter as he is literally within the last week of his life. He's let himself go so much, he refuses to leave his apartment, let alone go to a hospital, and he eats very, very poorly, as you might expect. So he knows he is basically on his way out. And despite the urgings of some people who know him very well, as well as one person who doesn't, he refuses to go to the hospital and get treatment. But I think even this far along in his 600-pound life, it's very difficult for him to get the treatment that he deserves. 
or that he needs, so to speak. Um, so anyway, you find out throughout the film that he's reclusive for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them being that when he was a professor who actually showed up in front of a class of college students, he actually met and fell in love with one of his grad school students who was a guy and Charlie was married to Mary, who's played by Samantha Morton, and together they had one daughter, Ellie, who's played in this movie by Sadie Sink. So Charlie left his wife and daughter for another man who was eventually uh, killed tragically. So Charlie is dealing with a lot of issues. First and foremost, his, his being his unhealthy lifestyle. And there are people in his life, not his wife and or ex-wife and daughter, but there's a friend of his who happens to be a nurse by the name of Liz, who's played by Hong Chow. And there's also a well-intentioned missionary from a church that's kind of like the Mormon church, except it's not Mormon, but it's one of those extremist church churches where they send out missionaries to get their word out about their church, but they also hold very extremist points of view. Like for example, they're preparing for the end of the world and for the second coming of Jesus. They're really preparing for it. So this, uh, missionary of this extremist church is named Thomas and he's played by Ty Simpkins and Thomas is a well-intentioned young man, but as Ellie Sadie Sink's character eventually leads him to reveal there's more to him than the nice suit and the short haircut. And there are a lot of issues with the Thomas character as well. But the focus is mainly on Charlie, who's coming to terms with the fact that he messed up with his family years earlier, and he's messed up his life up to this point. So he, if he's going to go out, not very ceremoniously, he might as well make it up to his daughter for whom he cares deeply. So there, this movie is based on a one-act play, excuse me, not a one-act play, um, a play by Samuel D. Hunter, who is a native of Moscow, Idaho, where this movie actually takes place. Samuel Hunter now lives in New York City, but he wrote and premiered this play in 2012, and he also wrote the screenplay for this film. And one of the main weaknesses of the whale is the fact that it does feel like a play. And I feel like when you make a play into a movie, it shouldn't feel like it takes place in one room, but th I think there are some exceptions here, but one of the issues I had with the, the movie feeling like a play is the fact that I wanted to know what exactly happened to the, the man with whom Charlie left his for whom Charlie left his family and his fate was told rather than shown. And his fate was also told very quickly to the point where I wanted to rewind and, and see the exact or know the exact reason how he met his fate, but I couldn't because I was in a movie theater, but regardless I do think this movie could be pigeonholed as exploitation, similar to the TLC show, My 600 Pound Life. And actually, I've seen a couple of episodes of that show, and while I really don't like TLC, and I think they've deviated almost too much from the channel from which they originally intended to be, which was the learning channel. Now there is absolutely nothing educational on that channel. I do think that my 600 pound life is well-intentioned and cautionary for the right reasons. And I'll say that for the whale as well. And I'm also very reluctant to say that Brendan Fraser turns in a brave performance because I think that anybody could put on prosthetics and play this kind of character. But I think Brendan Fraser with his performance 
delves very well into not just a morbidly obese man, but a man who knows that he's made a lot of mistakes in his life. He knows that he's at his end and he wants to make right with what he's done wrong with his life up to that point. I think, I think that for that reason, Brendan Fraser plays his character in a very brave way and he makes him a very sympathetic and also very flawed character. So Brendan Fraser in this movie is amazing. I also really liked Sadie Sink as his estranged daughter, Ellie. She had probably some of the best lines here, but also cuts to the core about of just about every character with whom she encounters. And there's also a great other supporting performance here by Hong Chow as the nurse and seemingly the only confidant of Charlie, Liz. I think she turns in a very multifaceted performance, especially when she reveals not just to Charlie, but some other characters, her reasons behind doing the job she does, as well as sticking by Charlie's side the way that she does. And Hong Chao has been in a number of movies recently. One of her most recent movies in which she's acted has been The Menu, which is also very good, although <laughs> with Ray Fiennes being the dynamic character in that film as he is, it's easy to see how Hong Chao was pushed to the side there. But she did very well with what she was given in that movie. It's just she shines a lot more in The Whale, and for that matter, more than any other film she's ever done. So The Whale does have some weaknesses in terms of its execution and its distancing itself from the stage play on which it was based, but I still enjoyed it very much, and I think that it could have been a lot more exploitative than it was, and I'm glad it didn't go towards that path, which is why I give The Whale my rating of a knockout. And it's a film that I wish I had seen closer to around the time that it came out, but I just didn't get the chance. But I did see it now, and I do think it is undoubtedly Brendan Fraser's best performance of his career. And yeah, Brendan Fraser is known a lot for his action films as well as his comedy movies like Bedazzled and Encino Man, but I've always admired Brendan Fraser's acting ability. He certainly knows how to be funny, but he also knows how to be really serious. And this film is certainly the payoff that critics like me have seen before, but not many other audience members might have seen or even paid attention to in other films that he's done. But this is the comeback that Brenda Fraser deserves, and I hope to see him in other things really soon. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Women Talking. This is, like The Whale, another independent film that's already been nominated for several awards, but the Oscars haven't quite come out yet, but this is a film that is certainly a contender. Women Talking is directed by and written by Sarah Polly, who is a former child actress who has done very well in movies, both in acting and in directing, since uh, she left her, well, since she grew up. And there have been several movies she's directed before this, including Away From Her, Take This Waltz, and Stories We Tell, and... There, there are a number of others that I could get into as well, but this is probably the highest profile movie that Sarah Pauly has directed up to this point, and it also has the largest all-star cast. Women Talking is a film where a group of women in a commune have three choices to which they debate on screen for you. They can either do nothing, stay and fight, or leave. And for some reason, this movie takes place in 2010, and I'm not exactly sure why movies, some movies take place in a 
given year that's inconsequential. Why did it take place in 2010 as opposed to 2011 or 2012? I don't exactly know. But this movie is, at least according to the credits, based on a true story. So that might have something to do with it. But in 2010, the women of an isolated religious community, very much like the Amish, although the the Amish name isn't spoken here, but very similar to that, they live in a religious community where technology and outsiders are frowned upon. But the women of this isolated religious community grapple with reconciling a brutal reality with their faith. And the brutal reality is that one of the men within their isolated colony, presumably a Mennonite colony, that uh, certain men within this community drugged and raped some of the community's women at night for years. So these women, who include Ona, who's played by Rooney Mara, Salome, who's played by Claire Foy, and Marish, who's played by Jesse Buckley, decide one of those three things. They can either do nothing, uh, stay within their community, and just continue on as usual. They can stay in their community and fight, or they can leave. And Women Talking takes place primarily in a barn where all these women are deciding one of these options. And they're taking into account that their faith uh, factors in, and also they are seriously considering that if they leave, they might not be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven by God. And it's not because they are blind or because they're stupid that they believe this. It's because this this belief has been indoctrinated into them literally since they were born. And the, the cast of the movie is almost all women. The primary exception is the college-educated member of this community who has seen the world outside of this community. His name is August Epp. He is a teacher in this community, and he's played by Ben Wishaw. He is certainly one of the, perhaps the only, man that this community of women can really trust. And as you see the film, you learn that there are women within this community who hold certain positions and they debate throughout this film. So in a lot of ways, this film is very slow, but it does make you think. And it is a very poignant and thought-provoking film, which reminded me in a lot of good ways of 12 Angry Men. And it's it's not the opposite kind of film of, of 12 Angry Men, which was, of course, a, a play before it became a movie and then ultimately had many revivals, one on film and several others on stage. But that was Sidney Lumet's tour de force. It certainly wasn't the first or last film that he directed, but it it still stands today as one of his best. And the same could, could certainly be said for Sarah Pauly directing this film as well. It, I think amongst her filmography, this, at least amongst the movies I've seen that have been directed by her, is undoubtedly her best. And I think I've explained in, in several ways why. So Sarah Pauly wrote the screenplay for this film, and collaborated with Miriam Toes, who actually wrote the book upon which this movie is based, which is also called Women Talking. And Sarah Pauly and Miriam Toes are both Canadian, just kind of putting it out there. But this film arguably takes place in America. But that's really beside the point. I think this film is universal enough so that there could be women of various groups and it doesn't necessarily have to be groups that are isolated from the outside world who probably have men within their group who inflict such pain upon them and they come to one of these three choices themselves they can either do nothing stay and fight or leave and that is a very powerful message and just about everyone in this cast turns in amazing performances 
Rooney Mara is not one of my favorite actresses. I think she's somewhat under, uh, excuse me, somewhat overrated. I think her sister Kate Mara is a better actress, but I think she does well in this film. I think the best actress of the people in this movie uh, includes Jesse Buckley, who certainly has a philosophy that runs in contradiction to the more optimistic Salome, who is Claire Foy's character, but I especially like the dynamic between both of them. I don't think there's a single person who acts poorly in this film, including Rooney Mara, and this is a film that, as I said, it might not entertain you, it might not be a film that you watch in one sitting, at least while staying awake, but it certainly is a film that if you take everything in, it will make you think. I'm not going to reveal what decision they come to, but I do have to say that the decision is, I think, appropriate considering the conversation that goes on here, which is why Women Talking gets my rating of a knockout. It's certainly one of the best films that I've seen this year. It did not make my top 10, but it only barely missed my top 10, but it's a film that I think a lot of people from a lot of different segments of life, not just people within the Mennonite community, if they're allowed to watch movies, I think certain Mennonites do, but the Amish usually don't. But this is a film that will get people talking, not just women talking. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary that is a Netflix original, and it is called The Hatchet-Wielding Hitchhiker. This is a film that premiered on Netflix on January 10th, 2023. So it's taken me a little while to get to this film, but as of the date of this podcast, it's the number two most watched Netflix film of this week. Not ju- it is the most watched documentary of this week, but amongst all films of all different genres, this is the second most watched and will probably be in Netflix's top 10 at least for a little while. It is a shocking documentary that chronicles a happy-go-lucky nomad's ascent to viral stardom and, in an interesting twist, the steep downward spiral that resulted in his imprisonment. So maybe the imprisonment part is a spoiler in a sense, but it is very ironic because back in 2013, on February 2nd, 2013, my God, that's almost 10 years ago now, which is kind of the stone age for uh, viral videos, but there was a man who was put on the news and then his news report was put on the internet and he became a viral video sensation. His name was Kai, but his uh, actual name was uh, Caleb Lawrence McGilvery. And the incident that happened that, that brought him uh, viral acclaim was that there was another man, an older man, who was in a car accident. And when he emerged from his car, for some odd reason, he came out and he started beating upon some female pedestrians who were nearby. And Caleb McGilvery, who referred to himself as Kai, came by and took out a hatchet blade and hit the man over the head several times with it. It didn't injure him, but it sub- subdued him enough so that the police could arrest him. And people should have been immediately suspicious when Kai was interviewed by somebody from a local Fox affiliate, and upon be- being interviewed, he just left the scene of the crime, which he, I think is probably illegal to do, but 
the, the police were after him not because of assault and battery, which I, I think in this case was justifiable, but because of the fact that he was a key witness in another assault and battery. But eventually, I mean, he becomes a viral sensation because of this video because he comes off very much like a lovable schlub, sort of one of those California dudes who just is very easygoing and laid back and doesn't take a lot of things in life seriously. But then when more details become uh, come out about Kai, as he is known, he, he is eventually indicted in a murder. And I think that this documentary, which is directed by Colette Camden and also written by her, if you want to call it that, because I don't really think documentaries are exactly written as much as they are spliced together. But regardless, Colette Camden was the force behind this documentary. But the movie seems to focus more on Caleb McGilvery's viral fame than his background and his crime because it seemed like the the crime for which he was indicted and later convicted accounts for the last 20 minutes of this movie when it really should have been the second half so the movie kind of seemed to be almost starstruck by the fact that Kai became this viral sensation and focused on his California surfer dude personality as well as his subversive nature and also his uh, appeal in a charismatic way, in addition to his appearing on Jimmy Kimmel Live because Jimmy Kimmel has a, a, a great ability to take somebody who's gone viral and make more stars out of them than they ultimately were previously. And I think he does that actually better than any other talk show host. But in in any event, the irony of the film should have been the second half of the documentary, but it ended up being the last 15 or 20 minutes to the point where you find out that Caleb McGilvery is now a felon but you don't exactly know why, and the movie doesn't really elaborate upon why. You do eventually find out that Caleb McGilvery was raised in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, but you don't find out how he got to California, what some of his ambitions were, what some of his lack of ambitions were, because only two people who knew him when he was a child are interviewed. And it also is not very critical of the people who put him on TV, especially some of the producers who tried to make him into the next reality TV star like Kim Kardashian. Don't they have some sort of complicity to this story? The movie doesn't really seem to think so. And And when the movie hinted at the culpability and the complicity of some of these TV executives who wanted to make Kai a star and not just a a one-off viral sensation, I was immediately actually reminded of the movie Network, another movie directed by Sidney Lumet, which is one of his best, which was pretty prophetic when it talked about or when it satirized the idea that because news is on TV, eventually entertainment would intersect with news and it would create news as entertainment rather than information. And it didn't turn out exactly the way it did in the movie network, but with the advent of cable TV and especially Fox news and talk radio news has somewhat degenerated into entertainment. But the point that I was that reminded the hatchet wielding hitchhiker to me of network was the fact that in that movie, TV executives took a guy who was clearly mentally ill and needed help and exploited him for ratings. And when those ratings went down, I'm not going to give away. They did something drastic that was not getting him the help he needed. So they kind of took matters into their own hand and nothing like this has really happened in real life, but the, the satire part and the sad part of network was that they saw ratings and they saw money, but they didn't see humanity. And I think 
that sort of satire of that aspect of the television industry fit very well into the hatchet wielding hitchhiker. The problem was director Colette Camden missed that part. It, it was almost like there were a couple of TV executives and, and reporters who felt guilty about what happened, but there were some who didn't actually express any kind of responsibility for their actions. And the, the movie, the, the last 20 minutes of the film felt more like shell shock than revelation. It was almost as if this seemingly laid back guy who reminded me of Polly Shore or Jesse Camp just took a, a shift here and there. And I just, or a shift in character that in any other kind of fictional film would have felt jarring. I thought that the, the hatchet wielding hitchhiker was fascinating for the first two thirds of it, but the last third of the movie felt contrived and that's saying a lot for a documentary. So the hatchet wielding hitchhiker is entertaining to a certain point, but the end of it doesn't shed light on responsibility that the way, the way that it should, the responsibility of the media, the responsibility of law enforcement and the responsibility of the viewers to become less complicit and actually shed some culpability and responsibility on those who really deserve it. So the hatchet wielding hitchhiker is entertaining, but it's morals are mixed and distributed unevenly, which is why the hatchet wielding hitchhiker gets my rating of a strikeout. It's an entertaining documentary, but not a great documentary that really balances its messages particularly well. And it seemed to be almost as starstruck by this viral sensation as the people who unassumingly came across this video on YouTube almost 10 years ago. And it should have been a lot more responsible than that. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've gone through all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and on streaming for the week of January 23rd through January 27th. 2023. And there aren't very many movies that are coming out in theaters, but I am going to start with that first. And I doubt that some of these films are coming out in theaters near you, but I will tell you what they are anyway, and I will let you decide whether or not you want to see these films. The first film, which looks like the primary big film that's coming out in theaters the weekend of January 27th, is a movie that's called Close, C-L-O-S-E. I'm not sure if that's close or close, but either way, I'm going to just going to call it close because it's a movie about an intense friendship between two 13 year old boys whose names are Leo and Remy. And that friendship suddenly gets disrupted struggling to understand what has happened. Leo approaches Sophie Remy's mother close is a film about friendship and responsibility. So I don't know what happens when Leo approaches Sophie. Um, chances are, if you know the movie Heavenly Creatures, it can't be good, but I don't, I don't know if this is a film that is based on a true story or not. It is a drama. It is dramatized. 
And it is a film that is directed by Lucas Don't. And Lucas Don't is a director who has been around for a little while. Although he's a young man, he is a Belgian uh, director. And he is only uh, 30 years old. And, excuse me, 31. I did the math wrong there. But, yeah, he certainly has um, had a prolific directing career up to this point having been on Forbes 30 under 30 Europe list uh, back in 2019. As far as his director uh, directorial efforts, he has directed Ellen Finney, uh, which was a short back in 2014. He made his feature film debut as a director in 2018 with the film Girl, which I actually have not seen, but it looks like a very intense film. So... I don't know how widely distributed Close is going to be. I also don't know how it's going to turn out, whether it's going to be a good film or a bad film, but it certainly has certain assets that could make it a great film. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on January 27th is a movie that's called Maybe I Do, which is a film that is likely to be released in theaters or at least get a wide distribution on streaming. The movie has an all-star American cast, including Diane Keaton, Richard Gere, Susan Sarandon, Emma Roberts, Luke Bracey, and William H. Macy. So this is a lot of uh, good actors here. So the movie is about Michelle, who's played by Emma Roberts, and Alan, who's played by Luke Bracey, who are in a relationship. They decide to invite their parents to finally meet about marriage. How you meet about marriage, I don't exactly know, but as it turns out, the parents already know one another well. How they do, I don't exactly know, which leads to some differing opinions about marriage. So the movie is actually directed and written by Michael Jacobs, and I want to see, actually, this is the same Michael Jacobs who created the shows My Two Dads, Dinosaurs, and Boy Meets World. So... It's interesting. He's had some experience in movies. He produced the 1994 movie Quiz Show, which was nominated for Best Picture. That was the one that was directed by Robert Redford and starred John Turturro and Ray Fiennes, as well as Rob Morrow and Mira Sorvino. That's an excellent film that was unfortunately overshadowed by three other Best Picture nominees, Forrest Gump, The Shawshank Redemption, and Pulp Fiction. Uh, but anyway... As a director, Michael Jacobs has actually not had that much experience. He's only directed one episode of My Two Dads before he directed Maybe I Do. So I am very interested to see how this movie uh, pans out. It certainly seems like one of those films that Nancy Myers would have jumped at the chance of directing. I don't exactly know how... Michael Jacobs is going to make this film. Um, well, if he's going to make a film that could potentially be great, I don't know, but it's a film that I probably will see, but I can't guarantee it. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the last movie that is, uh, that is subject to being released in theaters on January 27th is a movie that's called distant. Now this movie has very little, um, information on it except for uh, some information about who's acting in it, who's directing it, and a little blurb about what the movie entails. But it's a movie about an asteroid miner who, after crash landing on an alien planet, must make his way across the harsh terrain, running out of oxygen, hunted by strange creatures, to the only other survivor. The directors of this film are Josh Gordon and Will Speck, whose names sound very familiar. And amongst the movies that Josh and Will have directed have included Lyle Lyle Crocodile, Office Christmas Party, The Switch, and Blades of Glory. And those are just amongst the bigger ones. So this actually sounds like... It's definitely science fiction. It also could be a drama, but the reason this is strange is because I don't see a poster 
for the movie Distant. And considering the, the number of big films that Josh Gordon and Will Speck have directed, it's very bizarre to me that there's no um, poster for this. But the stars of the movie include Anthony Ramos and Naomi Scott, amongst other people. I think Anthony, Anthony Ramos is the primary star of this film, as well as the one that we see the most often. But Distant is a film that looks intriguing, but seeing that it's coming out in January, it might not be. I don't exactly know. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and I'm going into my second part of what's coming up next, which is, as I said before the break, a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of January 23rd through January 27th, 2022. So now I'm going to get into the movies that are subject to being released on streaming starting with Netflix. And the first movie that will be premiering as a Netflix original on January 23rd is the movie Narvik, which is also known as Narvik, Hitler's First Defeat. This movie takes place in April of 1940, where the eyes of the world are on Narvik, a small town in northern Norway, source of the iron ore needed for Hitler's war machinery, and through two months of fierce winter warfare, Hitler is dealt his first, but not his last, defeat. This sounds like an amazingly epic film, and it is a Norwegian film that is directed by Eric Joldbard, and forgive me if I pronounce that film or that name incorrectly, but... He has directed several films, most of which have been released in Norway. And this is a film that looks very epic and potentially like an Oscar contender. I'm not going to say whether or not it will be or if it's not what it's cracked up to be. I have to see that movie for myself because every movie, in my opinion, is great until proven bad. But Narvik is a film I will seek out. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Amongst uh, Netflix original, there's there's actually only one uh, film that's going to be premiering uh, on Friday, January 27th as a Netflix original. There are several series that are going to be premiering on Netflix originals, but this is a show about movies, not about series. But amongst the other films that will be making an appearance on Netflix the week of January 23rd to January 22nd include Minions, The Rise of Gru, which is an animated film that came out last summer. And in a, in a year of excellent animated films, Minions, The Rise of Gru was not one of those uh, great films, I'm sorry to say. But if you want to check it out for yourself, it will be on Netflix on Monday, January 23rd. Also on Wednesday, January 25th, the movie Begin Again will be making an appearance on Netflix as well. This movie, believe it or not, came out 10 years ago. It's directed by John Carney, who brought us the film once, which was made for a minuscule budget, but was an amazing film. And Begin Again was also an excellent film. Maybe not as prolific as the movie once, especially considering that it having Adam Levine as a supporting actor might have made it a bit problematic, but I still enjoyed it very much. It was nominated for one deserved Oscar for best original song. And I felt like it should have, it earned that very well, but the supporting actors in the film, like Kira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo, uh, as well as Haley Steinfeld all did very well in the film as well. But anyway, on Friday, January 27th, a big film will be premiering on Netflix. And this is a big film with an all-star cast. 
The movie is called You People, and it is directed by Kenya Barris, who is the TV producer who brought us such shows as Blackish, Grownish, and Mixedish. And there's a rumor that he's going to be coming out with a show starring Lawrence Fishburne, reprising his role from Blackish, which is going to be called Oldish. I'm very intrigued to see that um, show, uh, show because Kenya Barris had a great show with Blackish, and Mixedish and Grownish were also pretty good in their own right, but Blackish certainly stands among ab- above the rest. But You People is a movie that follows a new couple and their families who find themselves examining modern life and family dynamics amid clashing cultures, societal expectations, and generational differences. What those other things are, I don't exactly know, but that's the premise of the film. And Kenya Barris wrote this film along with Jonah Hill, who is uh, starring in this film. And also starring in this film is Laura London, Eddie Murphy, yes, the Eddie Murphy, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Nia Long, and David Duchovny. Now, the reason I'm a bit reluctant about this film potentially being great is, first of all, I don't particularly like Jonah Hill as an actor. I think he's overrated, but I think when he really commits himself to a project, he can do really well. The, The problem is he hasn't committed himself to very many films as of the last decade. I think the last great film he did was the Wolf of wall street. But even then I didn't really like him in the film. And I thought his performance was overrated. I thought a lot of other aspects of the Wolf of wall street were great, but not him. But David Duchovny being in this film also gives me some doubts because David Duchovny has not chosen his films very wisely over the last year. For example, two of his films that were released last year were on my list of the worst films of 2022, The Estate and The Bubble. And David Duchovny himself wasn't particularly bad in them, but he he chose them and he didn't choose very well. So I don't know how You People is going to be as far as its um, place. It's a comedy romance. I'm not exactly sure who the romantic people in the movie are, but I don't know. It's a movie that I don't have high hopes for seeing, but I'll see it. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. I might've already cast a shadow over this film as it is, but you know what? I give every movie a chance and you people is a great movie until proven bad. So I will just leave it at that. And on Apple TV plus, this is a channel that I do not have. There are actually no, movies that are premiering on that platform for the next month. And there actually was one film on Apple plus that I did see during the two weeks I was off for a Christmas vacation, but I'm not going to review that movie on this show because it was a Christmas film. It was the movie spirited and to, to review a Christmas film in January just doesn't feel right. So maybe I'll review it 11 months from now. I don't exactly know, but regardless, Disney Plus is a channel that I don't have, and I don't have anything on it. Disney Plus, no films are being released on the platform this year. It's just all series, amazingly enough. HBO Max might have... Actually, HBO Max doesn't either. I'm striking out here. My God. And I'm going to hold my breath before I tell you if there's anything that's going to be premiering this week on Hulu as an original movie. And it doesn't look like any movies are going to be premiering on Hulu as originals, but there are a few films that are going to be making appearances on the platform. The first one is the deer King, and this is not a Hulu original, but it is a relatively new film. It came out in 2021 and it is an anime. It's a movie about the last survivor of a band of warriors who is enslaved in a salt mine. One night, savage dogs attack a mysterious disease. Uh, Excuse me. Let me read that again. One night, savage dogs attack, and a mysterious disease wipes out everyone at the mine. The warrior escapes with a little girl while a gifted physician looks for a cure. 
This is an anime film, and it deals with some very uh, dark topics, but some of the clips that I'm seeing of this film show that it's very well animated. It's directed by Masashi Ando and Masayuki Miyagi. My apologies if I mispronounce those words. And I don't actually see any English-speaking voice actors in this film, so I'll have to leave you in the dark on that regretfully, but The Deer King is a film that is new enough. I might review it for you, and uh, and if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is making an appearance on Hulu, but is not a Hulu original, is a film that is actually considered a relatively new film. It was made in 2022, and it's a film called Maneater. Is it a movie about a woman who plays with the emotions of men? No, it is about a literal man-eater, i.e. a shark. It's a movie about a group of friends who, after an accident during their vacations on a a paradise-like island, the, the word here is paradisiac, but that sounds more like a disease than it does paradise, but if you want to call it paradisiac, there it is. But anyway... A group of friends who, after an accident during their vacations on a paradisiac island, is stalked by a large shark. So, the movie stars uh, Nikki Whelan, Trace Adkins, the country music star, Shane West, and Jeff Fahey, amongst other people. This sounds like a B-movie, especially since Trace Adkins has... Some, but not very much experience with acting. And it just sounds largely like a ripoff of Jaws. But it's uh, a film that is directed by and written by Justin Lee, who is an American director from what I know. He's directed films such as Final Kill, Badland, and Big Legend, all of which I haven't seen. Um, And I can't make any judgment on them because I really haven't actually seen them, but they do sound like B-movies. But Maneater is a film that I might see. It actually seems more like a film that would be better released in the summer months, May through August, maybe even September, than it would be released in January. But I guess anybody who's looking for a relatively new film with some kicks might see this film. But I'm not saying I won't see it, but if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And there is one last streaming service I will go over, and that is uh, Paramount Plus, where it seems like movies are coming to the platform all the time, but they may not necessarily be new ones. But actually, there is one new one. It is Teen Wolf the Movie. Now, there was already a movie called Teen Wolf that starring Michael J. Fox, and that was a movie that capitalized upon the success of Back to the Future. If it hadn't been for Back to the Future, I think Michael J. Fox would have been pigeonholed in teen movies like Teen Wolf, but that Teen Wolf movie was relatively goofy but kind of fun. But MTV made a a TV series out of Teen Wolf that, unlike most of MTV's shows, was actually very well received. Teen Wolf the movie is based on that series rather than directly toward um, from the Michael J. Fox or even the Jason Bateman sequel. But Teen Wolf the movie is a movie I might see. I don't exactly know because I haven't watched a single episode of Teen Wolf, so I don't know if this movie is going to continue upon the series or not. But if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.